HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This piece was brought to you by Kane Vineyard and Winery, kane5.com. Hey, good afternoon and welcome. This is What Doesn't Kill You? Food Industry Insights. And oh boy, are we going to be insightful today because my guest is George Faison from DeBraga and Spittler, which is a top quality meat distributor based in New York City. Um, he is the COO and a partner there, and he was a founding member of D'Artagnan, where he was a uh, partner for 20 years before moving on to DeBraga. He's been honored for his achievements by his peers with both Food Arts Magazine Silver Spoon Award and the Who's Who of Food and Beverage in America, the James Beard Foundation. Foundation, and in 2005, he received a Lifetime Achievement Award from Bon Appetit magazine. This barely scratches the surface of George's many, many achievements, but um, I, I would take the whole program to list them all. So welcome to the show, George. Great to see you. <laughs> Great to have you. Great to see you. Katie, I wish you, I could you, see you. You me over with all that. You know, it's tough to receive a Lifetime Achievement Award when you're not even 50. You yeah, know? no kidding, man. Where do I go from there? <laughs> you might as well just hang up those knives and sit back and relax and enjoy the rest That's of it. That's it. Uh, I'm going to hide. You're going to find me off the grid. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I can imagine you going off the grid, George. You're one of those guys that would probably do really well because I know you're a good hunter. And I know you can cook. Uh, so I bet you know how to make a fire in the woods when it's wet. Don't worry. Don't worry. I'd rather not have to, though. I'd yeah. rather not have to. Well, you know, I actually on NPR yesterday, I'll take a small sidetrack here, but there was a guy on who uh, has decided that when um, there's a solar flare of tremendous magnitude, which he anticipates coming up, um, we're going to lose all of our electricity. And so he has been busily archiving books that go back to the 18th century, basically so that if something does happen to our electrical grid, that we can start at the 18th century with information on how to build a house, a boat, a uh, trap game, et cetera, et cetera. And I just thought, yeah, we're going to go right back to that. I can hardly wait. Anyway, <laughs> I don't know why I felt like saying that, but I know you were a Boy Scout, right? I was an Eagle Scout. That's where, right. where it all started. I got all my skill set. Exactly. See, there's value in that stuff. I wish I could have done oh. that. You know, they didn't have that for girls. Look, the, the the Scouts are a great organization, except for some of their issues regarding gays as leaders. You know, they, they yeah. still have one of these crazy things that the thing that gay people are pedophiles, which, you know, is so ridiculous, which is why so I ridiculous. won't work with them anymore. Um, yeah. 
I, I am, uh, good for you. you know, I'm grateful for I'm grateful for my experience and what I learned from it. And yet, as an organization, they've got to get into the 21st century. Absolutely, yeah. My my brother-in-law is an Eagle Scout too, and was a scout leader for many years. And same thing, absolutely, just stopped, done, finished. Yep. Anyway, let's talk about the meat business, man, because that's where you at. Um, so, Debrava and Spitler, you guys are distributors to the stars, basically. I mean, most of your client base is, um, at least for, on the wholesale level, is with high-end restaurants. Am I right, George? Well, they are, and it's going to be kind of fun to talk about what defines high-end anymore. Yeah. And yet we do sell premium ingredients, and so our customers are those people that have found ways to make that work within their menus. And even within a, in a, in a menu that is not necessarily uh, you know, $200 a person menu, right? Well, it's it's extraordinary. You know, just before I forget, we also do retail business. Uh, yeah. You know, my, my wife who helps run that for us will smack me if I don't mention no, that. No, no, you so guys have a robust We do have a great order. online retail yep. store. So uh, that's in com. So at least I got that out of the yeah. way and I can get on with this okay, interview. Okay, so enough with the infomercials, <laughs> right? We'll go on to the actual industry. Um, so so just, just for starters, why don't we talk a little bit about the last sort of 10 years or so of the meat industry, which has gone through, I think, a tremendous... Uh, a series of evolution or a tremendous evolution. Um, so what, what kind of the biggest changes that you've seen? Well, there's, there's two big changes. Um, one is that there's been a proliferation of very high quality small producers. Mm-hmm. And so I'm, I'm, you know, great whether they're working on genetics in terms of heritage breeds or pure breeds, um, or whether they're working on, uh, you know, uh, the cleanly, you know, how clean is the meat, raising right. them without antibiotics, without, in the case of cattle and dairy cattle, raising them without added hormones. Mm-hmm. Um, to, to see that this is increasing has been extremely gratifying. Yeah. On the other side, what's happened, though, has been the, the real change that's happening in the restaurant side, that you've got this consolidation of restaurants under star chef ownership, or you have these small restaurants that are, you know, popping out of the woodwork that are people are, that it's not so much the over the top decor, even though the food might be great in these establishments, the multi unit, right. uh, like you know, Roberta's. establishments. <laughs> this, yeah. The one chef per restaurant thing is kind of, has really disappeared. It's, unfortunately, we see that coming back in some, in some ways. So how that impacts the meat industry is interesting because, I love working with my friend who's a star chef that we I grew up with over 35 years, but if I go to him with one of these small programs, I don't have enough supply. Yeah, yeah, we're going to dig that, into that. That's huge. Yes. That's one of, I think that's one of the biggest problems with uh, growing out this part of the sort of quote-unquote niche indust- part of the industry. And then I think what will happen is, you know, what I'm hoping will happen is that the demand will present itself as large enough for the larger commodity producers to think, oh, my God, we could be making more money. <laughs> oh, but that hasn't but, happened yet. But they yet. won't because on that side, the commodity industry has consolidated so much. I mean, 80 percent, if not more, of food production and the pork and poultry, it's, it's far more than that mm. are controlled by only four companies. Yes. They don't care about the niche. They don't, but they can't uh, sell into, I mean, what if they, I mean, for instance, the famous uh, example is Chipotle, which has been going, buying their beef overseas from Australia because they can't find beef that has been untreated with enough of a supply for uh, uh, untreated with antibiotics. And so... But then, but then look at what Chipotle represents in the scheme of the overall beef industry, mm. all right? You've got a drought going on now for three years, yeah. and the beef industry, the quantity of cattle in America has dropped to the lowest level since the 1950s. That's true. The mo- 
the model that these guys are working on, the big boys are working on, is we get them, we feed them, we fatten them as quick as we can, we kill them. So they're giving them growth hormones and they're yeah. giving them antibiotics. They're giving them grain rations that exceed um, so that they gain over three and a half pounds or more per day. Wow. And then they, then they give them beta agonists, which yep. is an asthma medicine in humans. But they, when they give them the cattle the last 30 days, they put on an extra 30 pounds of weight that in the cellular tissue is mostly water, uh-huh. and they blow it out the door. So that what do we get? We get is cheap and quickly grown meat, but the quality of it is not there. Yeah. Those guys are not going to change that model. That's the niche producers that have to do it. And we have more and more people attempting to grow cattle in the way that a Chipotle will buy, and that's going to happen, but it takes about two to three years. You know, in other words, you got nine months gestation mm-hmm. on a cow. She only drops one calf. It takes two years, uh, yeah. you know, for two that calf to, to grow, grow more yeah. or less. So you're looking at a three-year time frame before, yeah. you know, that supply catches up to demand. And then you've got a processing problem mm-hmm. because your processing plants for these large commodity producers are pushing through 2,000 animals a day. Oh, at least. And it's Four and if I cases. show and if I show up with my ten grass fed steers and go process for me, they laugh. <laughs> yeah, I know, I know. So and also, nobody wants the so, processors in their backyard. Nobody wants well, to build processors. It's like windmills, and so yeah. everybody upstate that's growing great cattle for the most part are some very well-to-do individuals that have great farms. They're doing great pasture enhancement. They're doing great genetic work. But then when it comes time to get them killed, they have no place to go. Nobody wants that slaughterhouse on their weekend property. Yeah, right. And actually, I've been talking to some cattle farmers upstate for another project, and one of the most interesting things that they told me is not that they have trouble scheduling time in their processing plant, but that the butchers in the processing plant do not cut to their specs. They cut to their own specs. So whatever is easiest for the guys who are cutting meat in those places, that's what they're going to do, even if the people who own the cattle say, I want this and I want this kind of cut and I want blah, blah, blah. They, they don't do it. And you have no, and because of there are so few uh, processors around, they have no recourse. There's no place else to go. So they just have to accept what, the, what these guys are telling them they have to accept. If I go into a plant and start telling them what to do, they look at me and go, you know, I got 10 people lined up outside that door that want to cut in here and aren't going to give me the grief you're giving me now. That's exactly right. That's exactly what they're telling me upstate. And I think that's a really interesting problem. Let me me reframe that, though. That's because you might get a chef going up there wanting some guy to cut like a restaurant butcher. And we're not a restaurant butcher. As much as I like to get my guys to fabricate with the precision that, say, a Le Bernardin wants for their Wagyu, mm-hmm. they, they know that what they're doing requires a different level of skill and orientation than what I do. It doesn't mean my butchers aren't good right. or the upstate butchers aren't good, but you just can't, you can't adjust in that, in that context and run a profitable a plant. I guess that's right. I mean, how could you? You know, because if every single uh, pro- uh, producer comes in with 50 head of cattle or 200 head of cattle and says, I want you to do it this way, then you have to retool, including possibly retool your line, right? To make Katie, it- Katie, they aren't coming in with 50 and 200. They're coming in with 5 and 20. Yeah. And that's the difference. The market yeah. is, is fragmented where it's either tiny mm-hmm. or it's big. Yeah. 
and there, there's really no in between. See, your your feedlots have become aggregators for the right. processors. So the processors need two thousand animals coming in a day. Yeah, that means that a feedlot is trying to ship. You know, they'll have seven or eight different feedlots contracted to bring in a load of cattle or three loads of cattle to keep that to keep that process line moving. Now. Right. Don't get me wrong, that process line, especially now, given the attention that the government has mandated for E. coli control, yeah. the processing and the hygiene in these large plants, for the most part, is exceptional. Yes, I would the agree hand, with you. The handling of the cattle is all based on Temple Grandin techniques because it means that they have less problems with the cattle and mm-hmm. with the beef. So I wish I could get my five or six cattle into one of those plants. Yes, I agree. I, I, I think the smaller plants are actually up against it with both of those concerns. I think it's very hard yeah. to maintain the way the big ones. I mean, I've been out, as you know, I've been out to a big, uh, several big plants. And, um, and it's like they, they will spend, in a 24-hour shift, eight hours is spent cleaning the plant. So, yep. I, you know, it's like, how can you compete with that if you're a small processor? No way. But you're still well. You can, you can, because there are plants around the country that are small that are doing this in a good way, and but they have to charge significantly more because they're mm-hmm. not moving the same quantity through to amortize their right. costs. Right. So instead of paying thirty cents a pound, I pay ninety cents a pound. Wow. So who do you you how do you deal how do you deal with it at DeBraga? Because you do have uh, a, you are you said you were working with smaller producers. How do you manage this bottleneck of production problems? Well, the key is is that I've got good relationships with the processors I work with, so I am able to get my animals through. My problem is, and this is tr- this is an interesting problem, and it's but it's part of the new beef industry. Mm-hmm. On these small projects, I have to buy or raise the whole animal. We do some of our own raising in terms of rare breed hog production, mm-hmm. but selling a chicken or a guinea hen or a duck is easy. You sell the whole thing; not right. a big deal. Right. Even a even a, a lamb where we're doing a a beautiful apple-fed lamb program, you know, su- supplementing with barley. You know, those are 50-pound carcasses. Great. You know, a chef can, a small restaurant can work with that and play with that. Right. Uh, a hog. Now you're getting into a bigger challenge because 25% of that carcass is hams. And who really, right. you know, I'm not going to dry cure hams and tie these things, tie my capital up for two and a half years. I don't, I can't do that. Right. And the, the restaurateur, how many of them do fresh hams, Right, right. right. Only so Latin then you get the cattle. <laughs> now you get to, now you got a nine an eight hundred pound carcass staring you in the face. Fifty yeah. percent of which is going to be ground beef. We're our program is throttled based on how much ground beef can we sell. So right. the rest of DeBraga on the commodity beef that we do, um, it, we don't have to do that. We can buy the parts we want. And that that changes the whole nature of the beast with working with these small producers. Uh I could sell more if I could sell the whole, but I have to sell the whole animal. Right. And balancing that way is a real challenge for for the average distributor and even for the average restaurant to try and take in a a half a steer and and balance everything out the door. Most are no way able to handle that. Yeah, no, I agree. And actually, last week, my guest was uh, Mel Coleman from, you know, formerly of Coleman uh, Natural Beef, and now he's with Nyman Ranch. And that's what we were talking about is like, you know, when you're when you're committed to selling the whole animal, it's like a huge amount of work to find ways to make that happen. You know, either you have to have a group of restaurants who are willing to buy together, um, who have different programs. I mean, out in Colorado this uh, fall, I met the guys who run something called The Kitchen, and they're they're teaming up with um, 
Chipotle and they're starting a new uh, sort of pizzeria that does a lot of ground beef because they're growing their own cattle out and the higher end cuts go into their fine dining and the ground and, and the lower end cuts go into this other restaurant. And that's how they're managing the whole animal equation. But it's really a challenge. And of course, that's a big challenge for Heritage Foods USA as well, because they too sell the whole animal. They never leave a piece behind. So No, that's, that is for all of us. And, and this yet this is where some unique opportunities exist in terms of flavor and in terms of cooking challenges. I mean, we're sitting here selling shanks now, you know, and right. helping guys go, what am I going to do with the beef shanks? I'll cut it like asabuco and you'll do beef asabuco. Oh, you're damn right. And I use that all the time. It's one of my favorite cuts of meat, actually. <laughs> right? For real. So, I mean, for spaghetti sauce or soups, ragouts, it's the best. I mean, nothing better than that. So rich in flavor. Yet here's a way to get rid of a big piece, yeah. you know, because yeah. that bone's heavy and the meat yeah. on it is delicious. But, you know, it wasn't a cut that anybody even thought of, you know, five years ago. Yeah, absolutely. No, it was actually quite hard to find. I mean, now it's a little more common, but it's still, you know, it's not something you see on restaurant menus. And uh, I don't know a lot of home cooks who are, you know, buying up the beef shanks in any major way. <laughs> well, you know, here's the problem is that everybody expects it to be cheap, you know, relative to veal. But, you know, here I'm paying so much for a carcass for an animal mm-hmm. and I have to price out the, you know, the different pieces so that, right. you know, at the end of the day, that beef asabuco is not, especially if it's a grass-fed animal that's been raised right. out properly to 26 to 30 months and you're paying the farmer a significant premium with higher processing costs to boot. Yep. By the time it gets down to it, you know, it's not that much cheaper than commodity veal asabuco, but right. you got a, a much better conscience about eating it. Yeah, <laughs> yes, you do. Absolutely. So in the sense of the, the rise of these niche producers, you're saying they don't really have, and they're not really having an impact on the commodity market. And so what do you see? It's like, I mean, you said this is like a secondary beef industry that's rising up. I, th- I, I want to hear more about that. Let's, let's unpack that a little bit more. Well, what the key is is that the commodity people could care less because they've got their machines running. And, to, and, you know, a few years back, Tyson tried to do a, uh, an organic chicken program. They stopped doing it. They said, you know what, There's, it's never going to be that big that it's really going to impact what we do. We don't need to do that as a brand extension. So this does, anytime you get the market this consolidated as this, you start getting opportunities, whether on the production side it be small producers doing, you know, uh, techniques or genetics or, or finishing mm-hmm. methods that the big people won't look at, or on the restaurant side, same way. You know, the big the big guys with their multiple units that are brilliant, um, though, create an opportunity for an individual person to do something at a less expensive level that per- perhaps becomes even more intimate and more delicious because it's so right. more. It, it doesn't have the same, um, if you will, character on it. It's character on one side that's different than the bigger things. Yeah. So to get back to the beef side of that, um, what we've seen is what people want on and on a food service side and even on, on the uh, home cook side, and they want something special. And even though, you know, commodity beef will be difficult to replace here because the cost difference is there, we do get people that want grass-fed beef. Yeah. They want it raised in a good way. We have a great program with Nyman on grain finished but again naturally raised clean meat yeah. no antibiotics ever no added hormones ever um, animal husbandry you know designed and implemented with temple grandin so you know we know we've got great programs but they're small i mean nyman what they process 500 cattle a week for their program i mean there's against the 550,000 a week um, right our grass-fed program upstate new york maybe a dozen a week uh 
you know, these are not large programs, but no. people really, the people that want it really want it. And so there's a lot more gratification in that sale. And, it, and if they can't afford it and we're out of stock because we frequently have to be, you know, then people, we have a customer and they'll go, okay, send me what I can use. And they'll change how they offer it on the menu, not dissimilar to what Chipotle does when they run out of sure. clean beef, right? Right, right. They Absolutely. Let- you just let the customer know. And to be honest, most customers, apparently, according to Chipotle, don't really care. <laughs> you know, it's like they're not buying any less of their barbacoa because it's, you know, uh, commodity beef as opposed to grass-fed from Australia or whatever. How, how but at you- least they're being told the truth. Yes, at I least think there's that's no important. deception about what it is you're eating. And, and I think what draws them to Chipotle is that there is that integrity. Oh, most definitely. And also that the food is made on the premises. It's not, you know, like you can see them in the back of the kitchen. They're like bubbling up the beans and shredding the meat. And, Absolutely. You know, there's Absolutely. like, there's real integrity to the food. And I mean, you know, I, I, I don't really see how that could translate into any other fast food venue because I don't see how people could be making hamburger patties. But hey, you know, I'll never say never. I mean, after all, McDonald's is part of the global roundtable on uh, beef sustainable, sustainable beef, right? So... Well, they'll go out of business if we don't figure it out. Now, on that level, there's another so? problem that we experience. Yeah. And this is where the labeling allows things to be stated that confuse the producer. I was just speak. I was just one of the speakers at the Change Food um, meeting that was held. Uh, you know, that's an offshoot of TEDx. Yeah. And we were talking about how the word natural has lost its meaning. Totally. Well, you know, here's what here's the problem that I'll give you an example of what I run up against. Um, I'm raising grass-fed beef in conjunction with some great farmers upstate. We're growing steers out to 26 to 32 months. We get really mature, slowly grown cattle that are the proper size for that breed. All right, now, by the time we process that animal, based on the the time that it takes to grow and et cetera, Mm -hmm. our cost factor is, say, X. Well, now, we know we're doing grass-fed. These guys are growing them on their pastures. They don't want to pay somebody to certify them for doing what they know is the right thing in terms of why should they pay somebody to come in and say their pasture is organic. Right. But then they can't sell that as organic beef. Right. Unless they do. Yeah. On the other side, you can call something grass-fed that's never been on a pasture. (laughs) And what they do, they feed dairy cattle baleage. Yeah. where they cut pasture and just dried grasses, and they feed this to the dairy cattle that are standing on concrete pads eating the baleage. And yes. it's certified organic pasture that's being fed to these cat these cows. And then when the cow dries up, in other words, as they get older and they don't produce as much milk, right. they slaughter them. Yeah. And then they sell this as grass-fed, organic grass-fed ground beef. Whoa. And I can't compete with it because the price is so much cheaper than what we do yeah. that I can't get it. They're selling it at a grocery store for the price I need to sell it to the grocery store to yeah. make any money. Yeah. So this is, a, this is a problem on this uh, trying to fill these markets where certain things have gone in that, you know, if the consumer knew about it, what choice would they make at that point? Yeah, right. Very good question. Well, on that, and, we're going to take And how sh- do you explain that to a consumer even? The consumer's like... I don't have time for this. With the Just attention the span of a gnat. Four screaming kids. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Nobody's listening. George, we're going to take a short break for a sponsor drop. We'll be right back with George Faison from DeBraga and Spitler, distributor to the stars. This is Chris Howell from Cane Vineyard and Winery. 
calling in from Spring Mountain above the Napa Valley. Thank you for listening to this show. In our industrial world of highly processed food and wine, we support the values of Heritage Radio Network. All of us at Kane encourage you to seek out individuality and beauty in everything you eat and drink. To learn more about us, go to Kane5.com. This is What Doesn't Kill You, Food Industry Insights. I'm your host, Katie Kiefer, if I didn't say that before, and I might not have. Um, and uh, my guest today is George Faison from DeBraga and Spittler. He's been in the meat business for more years than I care to even admit to him, um, or, or rather than he may want to admit to himself. I don't know. <laughs> It's what it is. I'm alive to tell you about it. <laughs> That's right. And you have a Lifetime Achievement Award to boot. So, um, George, let's go back for a second to um, the labeling questions and then and then sort of move into uh, the whole, like, I know you followed uh, carefully the uh, FDA guidances on the judicious use of antibiotics. And I just wondered if that, if you were seeing um, that having an impact on your supply chain and if you get any feedback from producers on how it might be affecting their business or their bottom line. Like, what's going on with that? All right, so first let's answer the label question. The biggest problem that many of us have is that the USDA allows the term all-natural to be placed on any product, no matter how it's been raised. So, And the reason for that is that they define natural as that nothing was added to the animal when it got processed at the plant. Right, minimally processed, right. Minimally processed and no, you know, artificial ingredients added at the plant. So now, upstream... At the farm, you're cramming tens of thousands of chickens into a barn. (laughs) You're subjecting them to photovoltaic manipulation, which means they turn the lights on and off Mm -hmm. four times a day to get the chicken to eat more. This chicken is so stressed out, it's starting to get sick. So you give it antibiotics. Yeah, of course. Subtherapeutically, like popping vitamins every day. Yeah. So that these animals are not sick to begin with. So you give them the antibiotics so they don't get sick. Then you sell them to us. And it's an all-natural product. Now, we know that 90% of the antibiotics consumed in this country are given to the animals we consume. It's prevalent in, in poultry and in swine, yeah. very much so in salmon farming as well. Yep. People don't realize this. Um, beef, when they're put on feedlots intensely, Absolutely. are frequently given antibiotics because they're fed too quickly and their rumen gets acidic and they yep. get sick. So people don't know this. Um, so just taking the antibiotic issue alone, we found that overuse of antibiotics has led to strains of antibiotic-resistant bacteria Absolutely. that are now impacting the humans that work with them, and over 30,000 people died last year because of antibiotic-resistant bacteria. Yeah. The FDA and the CDC said it's got to stop. The FDA gave producers three years to voluntarily withdraw before they put mandatory um, practices in place. Right. That was that was a good shot, but a lot of people felt the mandatory should have been put in immediately because the risk is that great. And so I'm grateful that they started somewhere, but I agree they didn't go far enough fast enough. Now, yeah. what is that going to do with industry? We stopped selling antib- chickens and, and swine pork raised with antibiotics and raised inhumanely um, over three years ago, when that happened, our sales doubled. Wow. Um, the, the reason they doubled was because now my salespeople are on the street saying one message, not you can get this or you can get this. Now right. we went out and just strictly said, you got to buy this because it, it, it's bad for you to buy the other crap. Right. But on top of it, this, the way we're raising the animals, they taste better. Yeah. 
Yeah. So what what is industry doing on the pork and on the poultry side, on the commodity side, the majority of these guys don't care. They're going to figure it out. Well, Purdue They're going to do has, something. Purdue has, but, has stopped using uh, gentamicin in their hatcheries for their eggs. So there are, the big guys are paying attention to this. That's, and they a, are, huge, that's a huge step. But Purdue, yeah. I think, is, in, uh, is afraid of Tyson and figures that the sooner they switch to an antibiotic-free program, yeah. the better shot they have at staying relevant in the face of Tyson. Right, right. Absolutely. And even Tyson has its Harvest Land brand, right? Isn't that, isn't that Tyson? Um, and, I'm not sure. But you get my point. Is that I What's do. happened on the Purdue? producer side is that they are going to have to switch yeah and the impact is going to be that and and i said to people they're going to still grow them in the big houses hell your organic free-range chickens are grown in these these industrial barns as well they're fed organic grain they're fed um they're they're not being given antibiotics so i get it they're they're organic and they're antibiotic free but what's the what's the what's the impact the cost is higher yeah, it is higher. And so really, I mean, the American uh, population is, is, you know, has got a little price check coming, I think, because <clears throat> because once these antibiotics are, are phased out, which I think is going to take a lot longer than three years. And I and I also think and I and you can correct me or opine yourself, George. But I think that what will happen is that if it becomes mandatory, and you know, Obama signed an executive order in September about limiting the use of antibiotics across the board, not just in uh, livestock, but also across human medicine. And and, um, and what was interesting about that executive order is that the 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 animal uh, husbandry aspect of it was really not anywhere near as um, robust as the human medicine side of this executive order was, which was like a real cave in to the industry. And the reason wow. that happened, yeah. I think, is because um, something that Scott Hurd told me, and I'm sure you know, remember him, the veterinarian, he died recently. Mm-hmm. Um, but he was hes very he was a very vocal uh, member of the commodity meat industry. And he said it's because producers will begin, and by producers he means large-scale producers, will begin to bring lawsuits. And then this antibiotic-free stuff will be tied up in court. Like they'll try to mandate or bring a law, pass legislation about the use of antibiotics, and it will get tied up in court because Cargill, Tyson, Smithfield, et al. have huge pockets, as we all know. And, well, the uh, and it'll companies be years control and years. it. So between marketing lawyers and lobbyists, yeah. you know, we're still not to the food chain yet. Right, right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we still got now, a let, long let way me, to go Let to me the add farm. another impact here, though, Kate, that's very important on this, and that is um, that um, – the mar- the food chain in the context of what happens with this wording all natural is that I go in the door with clean meat that right. does, that's raised without antibiotics in the case of chickens and swine, raised without antibiotics or hormones in the case of beef, and I try to sell that to a chef, and that chef says to me, well, I've already got all natural product. Right. And the difference in price is usually about 30 to 50%. Yeah. So, so now what happens is if I get the guy to listen to what's really going on, he goes, well, I still can't afford to have my food costs jump that much. So mm-hmm. now I'm working on cutting my margin to try and get into this guy's menu scheme because he really wants to, he or she really wants to work with me on this. But right. every time I cut a margin, 
I cut my capital that I need to grow my business and to reinvest. And I'm also going back to my farmer and going, can you help me a little bit? And we end up doing the same to him. Yeah. So because of the labeling confusion, we end up undermining the ability of the clean producers to compete with this uh-huh. product on a playing field where at least the information out there is accurate. Wow, and that's the George. government perpetuating that by not allowing us to change these labels and getting rid of the word all natural. Right. Consumer reports said flat out 65% of consumers, and that includes chefs, are confused by the labeling on the package of the products they buy. Wow, fascinating. So what's the answer to that? How, how does that change? Same thing. How do we get the government to clean it up when the main mm-hmm. producers don't want it cleaned up? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. They don't think there's a problem. It's <laughs> only not. the 2% of us that are left <laughs> that think there's a problem. We're, we're, you know, this is beyond the tipping point, man. We're on the verge of extinction. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you, you laugh, but you're going to see me in a diorama at the Natural History yeah. Museum. <laughs> you and this me both. This guy sold real food 100 years ago. <laughs> How interesting! I, you know, I, I, I think about labeling a lot, but uh, you're just you're spelling it out in a way that is like just irrefutable and obviously really essential. So, um, a very good point to make. And um, so, I wondered uh, to go on with that labeling issue. I mean, you'd mentioned chefs are almost as confused as consumers. How much influence do you think chefs have in terms of educating their um, constituencies? I mean, chefs in many ways, are the leaders, the the bellwethers of change in the food industry, uh, often the first to introduce trends and to popularize trends. So what do you you think chefs can do in terms of educating their population? Do you think that it makes sense for them to try to to launch some sort of a campaign on their menus, as many of them have in other ways? You know, like just the whole trend of like saying it came from, you know, XYZ Farm in upstate New York or, you know. Well, here's there's two there's two sides to that, and I'm actually three sides, and we have to find some allies on the government side um, at the state level. I think more than at the federal level, and you know where I think there can be a lot of work done at the state levels because we we'll, it'll, it's easier to find allies, right? Yeah. Um, especially in some of the agricultural departments, I think that chefs, to the degree that they they have a conscience and they want to do this, are, are, are true few and far between, but they're, they're coming along. I mean, you've got some heroes who've Definitely. done this from day one in New York, like uh, Peter Hoffman or, sure. you know, out in Dan Barber. Um, you go out west, you know, who can refute Alice Waters' influence? Right. Um, Absolutely. But you've also got some farmers who have become icons in their own right, who have spoken up and continue to speak up, you know, and like Bill Nyman or Paul Willis, you know, yeah. on, on the meat or side. Or true- I mean, yeah, all of these guys. Well, and so when you get this, these people have all, we've all got to come together and we've got to quit scratching each other and going, well, I do my organic farming better than you do your organic farming, or I don't, you don't certify your pasture, so you're not as good as me. If we don't stop that kind of crap amongst ourselves, then we can't carry a common voice to the people in the state legislatures who perhaps could help us by changing the regulations on a state level as how to how people, right? Yeah. I, mean, I think, and then, then if we get some action happening on the state levels, we can move it into the federal level, but we have to have common voice. Yeah. That's undermining us the most. It's, it's too, too much noise, too many, you know, dis, uh, discordant notes. And so it's right. hard to focus on what, well, what do you really want, folks? Yeah. Well, that this is, <laughs> I had no idea that there was all that kind of infighting within the 
within the system. I, oh, of course I, there is. I mean, you know, I want to sell my organic chickens to somebody. So what? You know, what do I do? I go. Well, yeah. you know, he uses well, uh, corn yeah. that's next to the dirty field. You know, I don't know. Yeah, it, you, you get the drift. Is I certainly we don't, do. In other words, I, I teach my salespeople, I go, if you run up against these companies, you do not disparage them. Right. You go, they're a good company. I think we can provide you equivalent product and better service. Go at that angle. Yeah. All right? Yeah. But don't disparage them by saying, well, they're not this or yeah. that when they are. That doesn't help any of us. That's right. Right. Because the idea is to sell more of the product overall, not to, to float the boats, as it were. You, you remember the, the, the uh, journalist, great journalist in the New York Times, uh, R.W. Apple Jr. Of course. And w- went by name Johnny Apple. Yeah. He and I were on the board of the, uh, the National Board of the American Institute of Wine and Food, and we were at a meeting, and I was lamenting some competition that had occurred, and it was causing me stress. And he smacked me hard on the back and said, Facing a rising tide lifts all boats. Yeah. So it taught me that the more people are out there trying to do it, if we're all doing it according to good protocol and with integrity, we're going to all sell more, and more and more people are going to be interested in it. And then as a group, we can go together and have a common voice and perhaps get the changes we need to have occur. And that's a different way of thinking. And it's hard to think that way when we're struggling to survive because of the issues such as the all-natural label thing. Right, right. No, I can So, you see. know, it's hard, it's hard to fight for something altruistic when you're starving. Yeah. And when there's nobody is, is banding together, when you're not, as you say, without a unified voice, you're not going to make any changes happen. I think that's a really interesting point. And I, I, I'm going to look into that some more. Um, and speaking to that, uh, let's talk a little bit about overseas trade, because the U.S. is currently no- negotiating some new trade alliances for our meat supply. And... Um, I was wondering if you had an opinion on how much that will affect meat prices overall, because as you said, the cattle, uh, our cattle industry is at its lowest point um, since the 1950s. Um, but we do export an awful lot of chicken and pork um, and turkeys, you know, other poultry products. Um, so when, when we negotiate these trade alliances for large scale meat operators or, you know, meat producers, does that have any kind of a trickle down for smaller scale producers or is there and is and concurrently is there more of a demand or do you see a demand arising for quote unquote cleaner meat well what happens is that on the people that are doing the small scale production the you know the the what i call clean meat producers and such they're not really impacted by that because they're not big enough really to be selling to overseas markets yeah although nyman sells Uh, a bit overseas not not so much. I mean, again, they, what they're selling is not the, the key or premium parts, right? They're no. finding markets for things. For the, yeah, but this sure. Is where for like brains and is, lungs, yeah, like everybody right? else. <laughs> well, yeah. exactly. But at the same time, on the commodity side, commodity beef is definitely going up. We mm-hmm. see it. You know, short ribs now are going into Korea again, so the price yeah. of short ribs is stupid high. Yeah. Um, you know, skirt steaks, uh, un, uh, you know, untrimmed skirt steaks are now <laughs> our price – our cost is six fifty a pound. Wow. By the time you clean them up, they're thirteen dollars a pound before you've even put a markup on them. So you, you see where the prices are going, even on the lesser cuts. So yeah. that drives the whole 
carcass up, um, which is good for the beef producer, but not necessarily for the American consumer, consumer, which is, you know, look, we eat too much protein as it is. We should be eating less, but eating much better. So my hope is that that will drive people to realize that, wow, that price differential between the commodity product and the clean product is not as great as it was. So let me, let me trade up a little bit. Uh Let me trade up a little bit. And, and even on the, the less expensive or middle class diets, you know, can this work in? Well, you know, if the price differential of ground beef is, is no longer double, but only yeah. 20%, then, then maybe they're going to trade up to a cleaner product. Right, right, which will drive so, that demand. Yeah. Yeah. So now, in terms of the commodity people, certain of these industries don't require a tremendous a lot of, amount of space to grow a lot of product. And that's the biggest problem I have with this stuff is that these big pork and poultry producers have produced a tremendous amount of pollution in the terms of yes. effluence. And so how the potential pollution, I should say, is certainly air pollution if you live downwind of one of these operations. And it certainly has a potential for land and groundwater contamination if that effluence is not oh, properly it, distributed. It totally and those are what we call externalities that, that yeah. they're not paying for. They do not pay for externalities. And that's, I mean, that's the subject of another, uh, you know, another... Um conversation but there's no question that <clears throat> excuse me the pork and poultry industries have an enormous impact on our waterways and our ground water as well as just the the chemical uptake in but plants. they can scale up <clears throat> so quickly katie they can go they're in north carolina and iowa they own mm-hmm. the state legislatures sure iowa's r- ridiculous did you read how, uh, ted genoway's new book these, uh, sorry to interrupt you but did you read no, ted no. genoway's new book the chain you no, should read I've that, been reading George, Meat Racket. I've been reading uh, yeah. Dan well, Barber's book. <laughs> well, this is the newest in that sort of, you know, series, as it were. Um, and he did a great job of, of dissecting, um, you know, the, po- the pork industry up in Iowa and sort of like really uh, tracing back. It was a, a lot about immigration and immigration law and labor issues, but it was also about uh, the way they sidestep any sort of, um, you know, cost uh, picking up any of the costs of the externalities such as uh, water pollution and so forth. It's a a really terrific book. I highly recommend. We have about like, well, we could probably go a couple more minutes. Jack, you're going to let me do it a couple more minutes, right? Yeah, we have like five more minutes. (laughs) So, um, so let's, um, let's talk for a second about, we were talking earlier in the first half about food safety. Um, Do your customers, uh, whether they're restaurants or, or, um, or yeah, you know, home consumers. Do they? Do you feel that they are signaling confidence in the way animals are raised, fed, medicated, slaughtered, etc.? Um, do they ask questions about that? Is that something that they're concerned with, or do you have a reputation that sort of puts you above the fray in that sense? Well, you're talking about the people I sell to, like yeah, the chefs like and I such. mean, when they do, do your customer base, are they saying like, well, you know, who 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 produced this? Like, well, what's it like? Like, what you know, have you been out to the factory? Have you seen the processing, uh, you know, facility? Like, where or where are these animals raised? Like, do you hear a lot of those questions? Well, this is the interest. This is a very interesting question that you raised because this is a big problem that we have in the food service industry: is that chefs don't get out of their kitchen enough, so they mm-hmm. tend to believe anything anybody tells them without doing their homework on the backside. Wow. And I've uncovered a lot of scams because chefs: one, they don't get out of the kitchen, and two, if they do, they don't do the math. Uh-huh. So, say here's an example: say somebody's raising 
uh, an animal, and they are they're process. They say they're raising 500 a week, and it takes seven weeks for this animal to grow out. So I'll go up to the farm, and they're telling me, yeah, they're all out here on this field, and they got ponds, and they're all in fresh air and sunshine. And I see maybe a hundred animals at most, and I go, so you're killing 500 a week. So where are the 500 you're killing this week? Oh, they're all here. And I'm going, no, they're not all here. And if you take seven weeks to grow out, where's the other 2,800 animals that you need behind this for this for this grow out to occur, for this production to occur? And then they go, oh, they're on other farms. And I go, let's go visit those farms. Oh, uh, they're too far away. I said, I got all day. And I have uncovered more scams than you care to know. You know, there's there's so many animals being sold with just only one part that you see on menus around the city, uh-huh. and you never see the legs, and you never see the shoulders, and you're just like going, this is not being raised in upstate New York, folks, because if it was, I would be seeing shoulders and legs on menus, and I'm not right. seeing them. So. There's fraud regarding, you know, the authenticity of how something's being produced because there's nobody checking that. Yes. And that's where the state needs to be doing stuff, perhaps, but the industry itself is, is too gullible. Yeah. It, it, it too many times. I was, I've been, we've been raising, um, our own, uh, rare breed hogs. We've been working with Amish farmers in upstate New York and we've been working with a select group of grass-fed beef farmers now for about the last four years. In that four-year time period, despite multiple invitations to multiple Multiple chefs, only four have gotten out of their kitchen and come with me for a 36-hour tour of Upstate. No kidding. Wow, George. That's really, because I know Patrick Martins does that a lot with his chefs. He takes them on a supply run, like, out to Kansas, because a lot of his uh, pork comes from out Kansas, Iowa way. And, um, yeah, he gets, like, 10 people. I don't know. I'm surprised. But I agree. It's a big deal for a chef to take that time. But it is important but, but to do they, it. But they will right? learn more getting out of their kitchen than they will standing in their kitchen. Yes, That's the problem sure. is that they've got to make the time. Look, it's you got you had to get out and do your field work to get a decent degree. You've got to stay up to date with what's really happening. So, yeah, um, I totally it's, agree. It's, it's a problem there. That, that So people will go out and say, you know, like Nyman Ranch, people think it's a ranch. Well, it's not one ranch, and Nyman will be right up front and tell you, no, we're yeah. a cooperative of growers. Right. And yet you've got other people that will go out there and say we're so-and-so farm, and, and yet it's not a farm. It's a processing plant, you right. know, that type of thing. Yeah, yeah, scary. Well, George, well, we... And that ends up on menus, and so people yeah. think, oh, I'm eating from this farm. How, how cool. No, you're, you're eating from an industrial plant. <laughs> oh, that's so sad. Well, on well, that I, note, look, unfortunately, we've got to wrap this up. I'll give you a up. quick thing. Yeah, We're down in Nashville. It's a diner. It's really got a great reputation. On the wall, they've got our pork is hormone-free. Yeah. Well, of course your pork is hormone-free. It's against the law to use hormones in pork. Right. I go, well, whose product is it? Oh, that comes from Smithfield. Right. You know. Oh my, you know what? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I know. I mean, really, it's like, again, it goes right back to the labeling thing, like what you can say and what you can't say. And uh, I mean, George, we're just going to have to have another conversation because now it's time to wrap it up. Um, let's <laughs> give a shout out one more time to your um, excellent consumer uh, mail order business, com. right? 
That's right, D-E-B-R-A-G-G-A, debraga.com. And, and if you use my name as a source code, you get a little discount. All right. <laughs> oh, we love to hear that, George. I'm glad you could slip that one in. Thank you so much for joining me today. This has been a wonderful and lively conversation. I knew it would be great. I hope you'll come back soon. Uh, and thank you so much to my sponsor, Kane Winery, to my engineer, Jack Inslee, as always. And uh, we'll see you next week with another great program. Take care, folks. Have a good Thanks for listening to this program on heritageradionetwork.org. You can find all of our archived programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can email us with questions anytime at info at heritageradionetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a 501c3 nonprofit. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening.